Hey, good people. It's your man, Charles Harris, also known as Tank Money, introducing you to the pilot for my new podcast, Tank Money Talks. Today's guest will be my homie and executive producer, Devlin McConaughey. Please tune in for Tank Money Talks. Thanks for having me, my friend. It's an honor to be here for the first of what I hope will be many. Let me uh, set the stage for you. I'm sitting here in my office uh, with a glass of Jameson on the rocks, just poured from um, his crystal decanter that was a gift from a friend of mine. Um, engraved on it is a quote from one of my mentors who's since passed. It says, uh, success is simply luck, preceded and followed by hard work. William J. Doyle. Cheers, my friend. I know um, you and I both spent our fair share of time in the casino. Um, and as a blackjack player, I'm wondering how much does luck play a role for you at the table? Definitely, definitely luck plays a role. It's funny you bring this up. I literally had this conversation earlier today. I was at an hour-long meeting with a bunch of gentlemen, and one of the gentlemen had heard my card playing tales and wanted me to tell the story to the other four guys that were there. And we were talking about, you know, it was, it was a funny group of guys because they were drunk. So let's start there. And no one was listening. Like you'd start talking and they would start cutting you off and telling you a whole different story. So this, it was just very chaotic. But in telling the story, I was trying to explain that card counting is not as nefarious or as mystical as it's made out to be when it's dramatized in a television show or in a movie like that because you actually are using some form of skill in tracking cards that you are guaranteeing yourself you're going to win it's a very 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 small advantage that you get if you're doing it correctly and conversely the casino's advantage over you if you are using no type of advanced in skill is a very small advantage. However, they have the benefit of being open 24 hours a day. They have the advantage of having more money than you normally have. And they have the advantage of knowing that the environment is more conducive to what they want to do than what you want to do, i.e. you're looking at half you know, scantily clad waitresses, you're maybe drinking, you're dealing with the other idiot on the table who doesn't know not to, you know, hit 16 against the two showing. So I think that as it pertains to luck, when I think about luck, yeah, because in the short term, whether you win or lose, when you're talking about a 1% advantage or disadvantage, luck plays a great deal into that whole equation. So does, so for you, do our, are luck and faith, religion, whatever word you want to apply, are those at all correlated or are those two totally different things? Totally different things to me uh, and whether it's in that forum or, or in general. So my thing about luck is very similar to, to the epitaph that you were reading. Uh, you know, luck, chance, these things, they come about because things happen to break a certain way or another. Now, there are some people who don't believe in luck or chance at all and think that everything is predestined, preordained, and things work the way they're supposed to work. There's this big master life plan going on and things are going to occur at the time that they're 
divinely ordered to occur. Now, I am a man of faith, but I don't necessarily believe that that's the case because the thinking man in me, I believe that if we're following what we've been told in, in spirituality, religion, whatever you know, moniker we'll put it under, is that God made all of us and that he does have a plan for our lives and he knew us before we were born and all of that good stuff, but he gave us free will. And it is free will is the joker, it's the wild card. So it can keep us off plan, it can delay the plan, it can speed the plan up. And for as much as people want to name things that mm, come come about randomly, there's your random come about. It's free free will. Like what I choose to do and when I choose to do it may be my bad decision. It may be your luck. You, you and I are riding down, what's, what would it be? Not perpendicular. Yeah, it would be perpendicular roads. We're riding down perpendicular roads and we're going at speeds that would time us up to get to an intersection at the same time and possibly have an accident. And I spin out of control because I reach down to grab my phone. As a result, I spin off into the side, into the cornfields, and you go through the intersection. My bad fortune, your good luck in that moment. Interesting. It's interesting to me. So like, so, so the antithesis would be, you know, that that's a praise God moment, right? Right. The antithesis is to say, well, some, some divine hand played a role in, uh, you know, God had other plans for me. It's what you hear a lot, you know, when, when things uh, go close to, to uh, real bad and they don't, right? And it's like, well, right. God must have had another, another plan for me, like that, that methodology. And, and it's, uh, it's interesting. I just, I just uh, as, a, as a spectator in that, that conversation, it's just interesting which, what things divinity gets credit for, what mm-hmm. things it gets blamed for, and what things you did yourself just because you're, you're just so good, right? And, and when, right. you know, when you watch, uh, you watch athletes especially, you know, m- many of which, you know, praise, praise God, pray to God before games for a victory, that always seemed, it always seemed so strange to me, right? So, so I get it at some level, but, but if you feel that, that way, do you really feel like God gives a shit whether your team wins or not? You know, like he's, you think he's a fan? Like, you know, it's always, it's, it's always interesting to me as a bit of a cynic on the topic to, to kind of mm-hmm. sit back and say, you can play, it, it tends to be that people play that card when it's convenient, but then don't play the same card when it's, you know, when, when the circumstances don't fall the way they had hoped to. Um, obviously in, in tragedies, people do question their faith and, and, you know, blame God, but generally speaking, you have a bad day. Nobody's saying, Oh God, why'd you do that to me? But you have a great day. You're, you're praising God. And that, you know, it's kind of like, you gotta, in my mind, it has to be equitable. You, you have to, it has to be all or nothing. It can't be pick and choose. 100% agreed. I think that, you know, anybody who prays for a victory today, uh, I'm not really sure what, what their overall thinking is. I think a lot of times when I've heard athletes, you know, they'll thank God afterwards, you know, for a victory, definitely. And they're thanking God that, that, that they stayed safe, that they were able to play their best game. Uh, I think pregame, I would hope that the prayer is for, hey, let's get through this game unscathed. Give me, you know, your will be done, God. Give me the ability to play my best, to use my talents to, to the best of my ability. 
and all of the preparation that went in this. Let's 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 make it fair. Let's not let the rest, you know, mess with the outcome. I'm hoping that that's the mindset behind the prayers that get made when it comes to a sporting event. Because in the greater scheme of things, yeah, I'm I'm on the page with you of. I'm not really thinking God cares who wins this year's Super Bowl. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm thinking it. It, uh, it brought me back to some thoughts from from our from our long past. Uh, yeah, I think we I think we've calculated about about 20 years ago ish. Yeah. Um, and so so before you and I met, I really didn't have any direct interaction with any professional athletes. You know that was mm. all, you know I was I was a kid too. I think I was. 17 16 17 something something like that when we when we mm-hmm. first met um so so hadn't had much you know other than a couple autograph signings and you know maybe a uh uh you know a friend with a relative you know that kind of thing but um but you know hanging with you in those in those early days i got to spend a great deal of time with quite a few different professional athletes you know all at a time when you know philadelphia sports were were on the rise kind of across mm-hmm. the board you know i remember card games that you and I were at with, you know, various names that, uh, it, that people would know and, and, uh, right. other social events and dinners and things of that nature. And, um, you know, I always, I was always, um, you know, I was told those stories, right. Those, those are awesome things to brag about great stories to come home. And, and I'd always get the question, you know, well, what's that guy like? That guy must be right. an asshole. Right. You know, and, and this, what I told everybody about, I could say everyone that I encountered with you, you know, maybe I'll, I'll hedge it and say, damn there, everybody is that mm-hmm. the, the amount of humble, faithful, God fearing, polite, thankful people. It's, they, they were all, they all had that characteristic, all, all of those athletes. And it was, yeah. it was almost that you could see, how they re, how they it was really apparent to them that they were fortunate or lucky or blessed you know pick your pick your adjective um right. to have lucked into where they were when when so many try so many get close you know i want to i want to come back and talk about you know talk about your your days of playing ball but you know it, it was that genuine like oh man i'm 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 here i don't know how long this is going to last but boy am i lucky it's just you the know, general sense I got. It, 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 so two things I want to say about that. I, I'll, I'll go with the shorter one first, which is the fact that I, I agree with you completely. The people who would have been in those rooms and in that mix of, of card players or, you know, BSing, whatever we were doing, but of, of clientele that I had or prospective clientele or friends, I learned when I first got into financial services, I was hired by a firm called Smith Barney back in November of 1997. I studied, they made me study for the remainder of 97 for the Series 7 exam. Then you pass the Series 7 exam and you can go up to Hartford, Connecticut to Travelers Headquarters. And once again, all of that, I think it's changed since then. But you go up to Hartford, Connecticut and you go through a few weeks of training. And in one of the training sessions, a guy named Chris Aikens got on stage and was telling us about what our future would look like as a stockbroker was the terminology they were using, financial advisor, stockbroker. They said, um, Chris's thing was, hey, you know, your clientele will resemble who you are as a person. And Chris was very laid back. I guess HR wasn't as uh, prominently on people as it is today. But he, you know, he was cursing. He was saying whatever he wanted to from up on that stage. 
He said, if you're an ass, your clients will be an ass. If you're stuck up and, and very, very uh, detail-oriented and very judgmental and very calculated, you may have a bunch of doctors or architects as clients. And my forgiveness to any doctors or architects, this is Chris's words, not mine. Uh, he said, if you're the type of guy that's laid back and wants to have a beer at 3 o'clock, you have a bunch of gregarious, outgoing clients. You know, you may have a bunch of construction workers or athletes or things like that as clients. And he said, the other thing he said that stuck with me was he said, whatever your clientele gravitates to you for, whatever they hire you for, will be what they fire you for. So if they hire you, you know, you're a cheap guy, you always cut them a discount. When they find someone cheaper, you're gone. You know, if you're the service guy, they can call you 1130 on a Friday night. Once you don't pick up the phone and they go to voicemail too many times, they're gone. So when I think about the room of people that you're alluding to, I would like to believe that they were humble and nice people in general, because that's the type of people I want around me. You know, that, that's yeah. the type of person that I am. That's the type of person that you are. It's the reason we're such friends. Like, the, the I don't have a lot of friends that, and I use the term friends loosely, <laughs> I don't have a lot of people who are able to dial my phone and get me to pick it up, who other people would say that guy or that girl is an ass like i just don't associate with that type of energy to keep it close to me so yeah that room should have looked like that the other the other longer dive onto that statement would be i think when you when you achieve the highest level in professional athletics and this maybe maybe rap Music may have a similar parallel to this statement that I'm about to make, but I wouldn't include other forms of entertainment, other forms of music. It, but I would I would include the professional athlete, especially the black professional athlete. I think that initial understanding that only less than one percent of the world's population is skilled enough to do what you do at this level. So. I think that realization comes into play for these guys. Sure. They do know the hard work that went into standing in the gym and shooting 5,000 jump shots and 20,000 free throws, 15,000 layups, or, you know, out in the sun, catching a hundred passes and all of the things that go into it. They know that part. But the thing that I think that even hits harder for them is they know the guys who did the exact same amount of work that they did and something went and broke against them and they didn't make it almost yeah. every athlete that i've ever talked to tells me a story about a guy who was as good or better than him but for whatever reason didn't make it so that goes back to your statement or question about do they realize how lucky they are because it's 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 first of all to be blessed with the physical ability to do that type of job at that level then to couple it with the hard work required to work with the talent, but then you still gotta be lucky. At the end of the yeah. day, you know, Earl the Goat Manigault was arguably one of the best basketball players that most professional basketball players say they ever saw or played against. Never made the NBA. You know, there's so many stories like that of people who were just phenomenal players and didn't get to the professional ranks because of something outside of the sport itself that kept them away. So, so in your, in your history, you know, I, I know, I know a little bit about the, uh, the origin story of, of tank, the financial advisor. 
um, I know, I know the, the, um, the tale of woe of you, you know, <laughs> go, going down with an injury and, and, um, you know, I'm, but having, having friends around you who wound up, wound up, you know, making it professionally and you being, you know, their, their smart friend and their, mm-hmm. their trusted advisor. So were, what was your sports story? Are you, were you ever on that level? Were you, were you going to be that good? Could you have been that good? Or were you just, you know, an adequate uh, college football player? I'd like to your... believe, I'd like to believe from an athletic standpoint. And the only, the only thing that I can truly assess outside of my own ego to say this is my very, very dear friend, Trey Johnson, who's played for the Redskins for a decade and was in the league for about 12 years. He has told me that I had the talent and skill to have played in the NFL. Uh, the one thing that he has also told me was that I probably would have never made it the way I was trying to do it. So when I first started playing football, I didn't play football, organized sports to high school. And I started playing, I was six foot two and a half, 280 pounds at a high school, John Bartram High School in Philadelphia. And we talk about luck again. During a year where they're all public, all whatever tight end from the year before had graduated, so they were short of tight end. They had somebody who, of course, was going to fill, fill the position, but the coach didn't feel as though he was adequate replacement for, for his superstar he was losing. And what was really the most biggest break of luck was there was an offensive line in place at this high school that rivaled NFL size line, offensive line. It was ridiculous. So first of all, high school offensive linemen, and we're talking 1987. So we're talking, you know, many, many moons ago, 33 years ago, linemen, linemen weren't that big. And when you got somebody walking into your school, 270, 280 pounds, he was automatically a lineman. You didn't care what skill set he had. He was a lineman. I came in, I was playing basketball, which is, of course, how I hurt myself eventually and ended my sports career. Loved basketball, sucked at basketball, much better football player, but loved basketball. And I was in my gym. I just transferred to Bartram playing basketball. The, the gym coach was the high school football coach. I didn't know him. And they were down at the other end of the gym throwing routes, throwing, throwing passes to, you know, to the football players. And somebody overthrew one of the players and, you know, in typical you're in the gym fashion. Somebody yell, heads up. I turned around, ball coming at me, top speed. I threw my left hand up because I was dribbling with my right hand. And I caught the basketball, snagged, I'm caught the football, <laughs> snagged it out the air. <laughs> I rolled the basketball, switched the football to my throwing hand and threw the ball back. Turned around and continued to play basketball. My coach, who was crazy, a little Lithuanian dude, Bar- uh, we called him Barney Rubble. I hope he doesn't hear this because uh, he'll, he'll come fight me. <laughs> But um, Tom Bezos looked like Barney Rubble, and he comes running down the court, and he, you know, he didn't know what to do with his hands, I guess, back then. He snatches me and turns me around. He's like, hey, can, can you do that again? I was like, do what again? He's like, catch the ball like that. And I was like, sure. He said, can you, can you do it while you're moving? And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, so I, I went over to where they were. I stopped playing basketball. I go down here, and I start running routes, and they're throwing ball, and I'm catching every single one of them. And he's, like, dumbfounded, and I can't understand why. Because the only football I had ever played was street football. Yeah. Where everybody's a receiver. So, you know, there's no tackle or guard or center in street football. It's seven on seven and six of us are running out for a pass pattern. And the seventh person is the quarterback. So 
I, I, that's all I did my whole playing a football career. So when I ended up getting on that team, he made me the tight end. And like I said, our, our offensive line averaged like 330 pounds. So I was smaller than the, the offensive line and was able to play tight end. I got like enamored with that. And that's all I wanted to do. When the reality was, was that I was a bigger, faster athlete than most people I would come across and probably should have used that extra talent to be a very, very, very good offensive lineman. Instead, I was a mm, above average tight end because I was too slow for the position. Even though I was fast for my size, I was too slow for the position. So I'm not sure. I, I didn't conform to playing offensive line. And that would have been my role that could have gotten me to the NFL, you know, according to my best friend. And so because I didn't want yeah. to do that, I would say I ended up where I belonged, which was not in professional sports. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you. Like, where, where does that sit in your head? Like, do you, do you ever, do you ever play the what if game on that and, and imagine that, that trajectory? And I, I, I already know the answer to this saying it because you and I share this, you know, this, uh, this idea that, that, if you yeah. ever given the opportunity to change something in your past or you change it, I, I think the answer is always no, nope. because you, nope. you don't, you know, you don't know what breaks which way. And, and I, I know both of I, us are very fortunate, lucky, blessed to be who and what we are. And I think we both, you know, both feel the same way, but you know, does, does your mind run back to, and when you see athletes, are you identifying with them? Is that, you know, is that I could have been that, or is it just like, Nope, that chapter closed, next chapter open, you leave it in the I, past. I, I, from a generation of athletes that I went to school with, as they went through the pros and things of that nature, I always identified with athletes and working with them as a financial professional because of my size. When I show up with them, people always saw me as another athlete, not as their financial guy. So I've always associated myself. I do believe that there is a new breed of mindset of player out there. And I don't necessarily identify with these younger cats, but my guys that were my age, I definitely saw myself as one of them. I think that, you know, to the to the question of would I go back and change it and then listen, not not in, in a million years, I think that there is a level of curiosity as to what playing professional sports would have looked like for me. But I definitely love the path that my life took not playing ball. And I was able to, you know, by the grace of God and and, and association, I lived you know, other than being on the field and having, you know, 60, yeah. 70,000 people cheering, I lived the life of professional athletes. You know, I hung out with them all the time and, and in multiple sports. Like, I wasn't even limited to being a pro football player. Sure. I was, you know, all-star games in, in NBA, World Series in baseball. I had clients in so many different sports that it was such a blessing to be able to see behind the scenes, be in locker rooms. I was in meetings where GMs told players they were getting let go, where coaches were talking to players about, you know, the intricacies of the game. I was in team meetings. So there was a lot of interaction between me and my clientele in their field of work to the point where I, I didn't miss it. Like I never missed the yeah. whole not being an NFL athlete. And you, you know, you know, because you know my, my story before the sports, I was, well, I, should, I guess I should say after college, but before my boys went to the pros, I was a bodyguard and, a, and with so many different famous musicians that I got to see entertainment as well. So and you and I share this in common, which is why I think we're such good friends that I'm so not enamored with anybody. Like I, I so take 
the position that everybody's a human being doing a certain trade or a craft. The fact that you do your craft on a stage or on a field and 80,000 people will cheer for you when you do it, doesn't make you that special to me. Like, you know, I, I, I definitely have a healthy respect for the talent and skill that is required to do any form of entertainment at a high level, whether it's sports or singing or, you know, theatrical, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that it's just another trade. It's just another craft that you have to work really, really hard. Uh, yeah. With it, with its own, uh, you know, gift and the curse, you know, that on, on double-edged sword there. I mean, you're what you sacrifice for that stardom and or paycheck and or whatever. Um, it, it comes with a price tag, you know, and I, yeah. I think that's one of those things you, you only start to see as you, as you get older, as you accumulate wealth, as, as you start to, to realize the, you know, the, the value in, um, in your, in your normal life, right. You start to see the value in your relationships with your, your family and your kids and, and, you know, the things you're able to do. And, and you realize that, you know, at a certain level of stardom, people, people have surrendered that you've surrendered privacy. You've surrendered, um, anonymity. You've, sur- you've surrendered just having a normal day, uh, especially in this day and age. I agree with that completely. I think that, you know, when we look at, anything that the general public gives us the majority of our direct income, whether it's purchasing tickets or TV contracts or things of that, you know, that nature, you have to understand that you're an entertainer, that it's not just about your skill of running a route or shooting a jump shot. And I think that so many in this day and age with this social media and public forum type of personality athlete and entertainer that's out there. I think they expect that. I think that they know it's all about building and, and, and growing a brand, being a person that people want to know what's going on. And I, I get bothered personally by people who make a living off of selling their life to the public and then want to, you know, portion off what parts of their life they want the public to see. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason that we all would like to hide or or keep to ourselves some segment of our life, but you have to, I'm just a, a big person on, on fairness. You have to be fair and say, okay, well, look, if I don't want you looking at this, then I don't expect to make any money from you looking at that. But people, right. you know, it goes to my longstanding complaint about the level of entitlement that people come to the world with, whether they are entertainers, athletes, businessmen, homeless people. We all seem to have this level of entitlement as human beings, especially American human beings, <laughs> that say what they're allowed to do and how they can dictate certain things. So where where's your where's your stance then on on activism and in in sports and entertainment? Is that is it shut up and dribble? You know, is it, is it let's, you're being paid to perform a service. I don't, don't, I'm not asking you for your activism or, you know, in light of recent events and, you know, you, even with the playoff games um, the other night, like, is that, is that fair? You know, is it, is it, is it proper use of the forum because they have the spotlight um, to, to take up a, a gallant cause? That's a great question. I, I think about it like this. I go all the way back to, 
my time, you know, as a Philadelphian and being a Charles Barkley uh, viewer, being able to see Charles Barkley go through the ranks. He was a great player. Charles Barkley was the first person, and we made a Nike commercial. I am not a role model. Yeah, you know his his thing to the world was see me as a basketball player, and then see me as a human being. Don't make me the person that you emulate to be, or you hold out to your children for them to be, because you see me on this stage and and see me as this bigger than life personality. That's not what I'm here for. The reality is, is that everybody is a role model. Like, you know, the reality is that I got his point completely. He's no more of a role model than the person who's the next door neighbor who gets up at seven o'clock, goes outside, warms the car up, brings his his wife out and opens the door for her. That that person's a role model. That, you know, some young person on the block is seeing how you treat your wife one day as a result of that. He's not going to jump out and say, well, I'm just going down to the veterinarian shop to, to, to take care of the dogs. I'm no role model. Everybody's a role model. To, to the point of what modern day activism is, is occurring because we have such a, we, we, we live in such a unique time right now, bro. Like there's so much going on and I see the physical and mental toll that it is taking on people. And it just, I think it's just enough for so many people. So many people are just done. They're just so tired. And watching athletes say to the world, hey, look, you guys are looking at us. And we see that there are certain people out there who are looking at us. And there's different camps, right? So there's the camp of your black diehard sports fan who is watching the NBA because they either can see themselves in the players or they just want to support because these are people like them. You got these people who the players stance says to them, hey, I know I make, you know, $742,000 $742,000 a game, but what's affecting you affects me. And it was said, I don't, I, I can't attribute the comment to, to anyone in particular. I get, by the way, I get all of my information on the world from either social media. I'll stop it right there from social media or, or human yeah. beings. Like somebody yeah. who calls me and tells me something. I do not watch TV. I do not listen to the radio. You know, if I have the music on, it's something downloaded. If I do turn a television on, it's a movie. I don't watch the news. I don't do any of that. So any world event stuff comes to me when I go on Facebook or watch YouTube or watch, you know, watch a podcast, listen to a podcast. So with that being said, I was on Facebook earlier and one of my former clients is Andre Iguodala. His mother and I are still Facebook friends and she had posted an interview that Andre did, I guess it was today, on Don Lemon on CNN, talking about what's going on. So I got the news from watching that little clip of the video. And he was just talking about the activism that the athletes are showing now, the solidarity, and even in sports where, you know, the NHL, which has less than one half of 1% of African-American, they still took a stance. And 
the belief is I want to show people while you're watching me that I care. And if I care, because I know this industry makes so much money because so many people care about the industry, then maybe you'll care about my view. And so when, when I'm seeing up and down timelines, African-Americans cheering on these players for taking the stance. Now you switch over to the other side of this and you have your mainstream majority white populace who watches these sports. And I don't know their view on the athletes. I, I'm sure it ranges. You have some white kids who want to emulate and, and be like these black players. You have some white people who look at them and say, you know, run, jump and do what I tell you to entertain me, black person. So you have a, a varied range, right? And on this range, their activism hits differently. And I think that their end goal is, you know, I, I would hope, because to me it's logical, their end goal isn't necessarily to change the mind of someone who thinks that they should shut up and dribble. But for those people, if they have negatively affected an owner or a broadcaster or someone else who's making money and those people can speak to that part of the population, they still think there may be a way for change to come. And I think that they should use their platform for that. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, we, and we got on together after the, um, the most, not, not the most recent, unfortunately, right. you know, you have to chrono chronologically uh, orient yourself between which particular heinous and outrageous event you know to map time with but um but i i think that what what you saw uh when what you're still seeing is that there's a a and i'll i'll speak from I'll speak from white kid perspective right i think there's a, a we've uh, we've had enough like we mm -hmm. from from a majority white you know this was, you know, obviously, you know, this has been happening forever. We just now have cameras, right? And we, we can't just manipulate police reports to reflect, you know, the, the most um, positive spin on, on um, uh, public officials and, and how they'd like to portray these situations for going down. Now we have empirical video evidence and, and we're, we're seeing judge, jury, and executioner happening at, at the point of a gun at a, you know, a poorly trained, under duress, uh, uh, poorly um, poorly equipped to de-escalate de and or and or handle the situation, we're seeing all, all that happen, you know, in in real time, live streamed, you know, for all intents and purposes at this point, and it it has reached a undeniable, unquestionable, unfathomable position of support, and that's fantastic but then what right so we're, we're all outraged it, it, it is undeniable you you um you have to be part of a um a minority that is a minor, minority of people who do will will never believe something no matter what they see to to feel any different than that um and you know for 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 my money you know you can you can go find your own way to help you know, if you're in, in that group, I, I'm not, I'm not here to save you. Like there's no saving. Right. You're not going to listen to anything anyhow. So it's a lost right. cause. Uh, but, but the majority of the world, black, white, 
you know, whatever is, is on one team at this point. But, right. but, but my concern, you know, my, and this is what I said to you last time is like, and then what, right? We all get pissed off for a couple of weeks. Things reset. We, we inflammatory language fires from both sides. We go from, you know, we go from defund the police to, you know, blue lives matter to everybody go to your corners and we'll come out with gloves on and nothing will change. You know, and, and th- to me, that's all, all that we're seeing now with activism is, is more attention. And I, and I get it and I, I agree with it. And I think attention should be shown continuously on a loop, you know, but, but then what, like, where's the, what is, it, it's the catalyst, but if there's no, if there's no change that happens because of the catalyst, then we're just, we're just doomed to either repeat these situations or for those who are, um, who are in going to incite them and cause the next, you know, unarmed black man to be killed in the streets, they'll find a more creative way to do it. So they don't get caught on camera. Like at the end of the day, if you're not fixing behavior, if you're not changing, you know, hearts and minds. um, And if anything, you're emboldening people to their opinion blindly. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. where, Where does the, where do we get down to the part where we actually have a dialogue? You know, and in this, in this cancel culture, we say, you said the wrong thing. Therefore you're, you're blacklisted. I want to hear from you again. Right. And we didn't do anything to solve a problem. We just sent, we just muted people. Yeah. Like that, that, uh, ESPN show where if they don't want to hear you anymore. They just hit your button. and you're, exactly. you're, 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 <laughs> That's funny. No, I, I completely agree. So here, here's, uh, you touched on so many points that I want to, to expound on a little bit or give my my take on what you said reminds me of the scene in Jerry Maguire when he when he decides he's he's leaving like you know they've taken all his clients and all of the drama has occurred and he's walking out and everybody is actually giving him the floor and he's telling them you know that he built the place and you guys will miss me and da 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 and then he leaves and two seconds later everything mm-hmm. is going on like he didn't say anything that is our culture that is the world we live in that is that is this country we are we are a soundbite society and when you see a situation where people can literally just get shot seven times in the back or a police officer can nonchalantly with his hands in his pocket kneel on a man's neck while he dies and that it can be debated tells you the problem like some things are undebatable you know i i uh i love dave chappelle dave chappelle is a comedic genius one of my favorite comedians he's overly gifted and he said something in not his most recent stand-up which was on the heels of the george floyd Mm -hmm. uh incident but the one before that, and I'm horrible with names, the name of the, the stand-up that he did. But he said something in there about how he said he's a victim blamer. And he was talking about, you know, Michael Jackson allegedly molesting children or something. And he says, see, I'm the type of person that says, well, what was the little boy wearing? You know, he <laughs> says, you know, and, and it's, he, he's hilarious on a matter that's not hilarious at all like that's there's nothing funny about that we're both parents like we don't even want to think about that yeah. type of that type of activity or the people who perform those types of heinous acts but 
there is someone or there are some people who seriously think that way. Like, yeah, this six-year-old got molested by a 43-year-old, and there's somebody out there who could say, well, what did the six-year-old do to bring that upon themselves? As crazy as that could be to me or to you or 99% of the population, there's part of the population out there who would ask that question. And I've come to accept that. So I don't get upset or mad or, or amazed when I watch someone, I see someone online make a comment after watching the video of somebody getting shot or somebody getting choked or whatever. And their statement is, well, what did they do? Or we started the video halfway through it and we don't know what he did to deserve that. No one deserves that. Like, that's the answer. No one deserves it. We don't not, I don't care if the beginning of the video was this guy beating that guy's wife with a yeah. brick. Yeah. That guy should stand in front of a judge and have his sentence read to him. He does not deserve to be kneeled on in the middle of the street for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Like, that's what's wrong with the society is that that someone could argue that, but they will. And I've come to I've come to acknowledge that. I don't want to use the word accepted, although I have to also say that that is probably a true word as well. I've come to accept it. I've not come to accept that it's right that they do that. I've come to accept that that will be done, that there is always another side of an argument. I do a radio show uh, every second and fourth Saturday, very briefly. I do a little brief financial segment on a radio show and the radio show is also captured on Facebook Live. Uh, my guy, Manuel Glenn, shout out to Manuel. Uh, he has the breakdown on 100 point, I don't know, 100.3 FM. Well, I tune in before it's my time to go on to do my financial segment. I'm interested in the show and I also want to know what they're talking about so I can adapt my financial part to it. And Manuel is a very, very highly politically charged guy. That's his thing. Like he loves politics. Now, I, don't touch politics at all. We won't touch politics with a hundred foot pole. Don't, I don't even believe in it, truthfully. I know people say, well, how, what do you mean? And we can get into that, but I don't, I don't even acknowledge politics for the most part. So he does. And he was going off about the current administration and how they are, you know, I, I, I won't quote him, but basically how they're the devil and they need to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And there was another person in the studio. It was funny because he said what I was thinking. And he's like, hey, man, you know there's someone else out there who thinks the exact opposite of you, who thinks that the current administration is doing the greatest job of running this country that could ever be done, and that anyone who would run against them is the devil. And my man could, couldn't accept that statement. And I think we're lost when we can't accept that someone can think differently than we think, whether we agree or not. You have said to me, you and I have had this conversation where you said that you love this country so much that you would die for my right to say something that would make you just cringe and you couldn't stand to hear it. But that's what this country was founded upon and that's your belief that you believe in this country that way. I do too. You know, one of my favorite movies is The American President and Michael J. Fox and Michael Douglas have this, you know, back and forth conversation or argument or yelling contest 
about that. And that is very much what Michael Douglas concludes. He says, you know, America is advanced citizenship and you got to want it. You got to fight for it. You have to be able to say that if this country is truly the land of the free and the home of the brave, that I would lay down my life for you to have the right to say something that would completely go against every belief I have, because it's not a function of what you're saying, it's that you have the right to say it. Because eventually, I want my turn to say something, or I want my child's turn to say something. So I wanna stand up for the rights of a country mm-hmm. that allows us to do that. Because in some countries, we can't. Some countries, the, the people don't have a right to say what the hell they want, you know, in a lot of countries. So the problem is, and, you know, I love this topic, first of all, the problem is, is that we have this divide in America based on the color of skin, where there is a faction of white people. And of course, we can tell by this conversation between me and you and our friendship that it's not all white people, but there's this faction of white people who believe that black people don't merit the same rights that they have. That black people should count themselves fortunate to be off the plantation and not not in chains anymore. And that they should just shut up and dribble or shut up and have their job that all black people are really good for making multiple babies and, and dropping out of high school. And when they see someone who actually is you know, reach the highest levels of education or success or whatever the case may be, they think it's the result of affirmative action or some other program mm-hmm. or or they're just lucky. They can't wrap their head around the fact that, nope, this is what that, that skin color of people is capable of. And it yeah. leads us to huge, huge divides that I don't know when we'll overcome, my man. I just don't know. Yeah, and I and I see that, and this is this is cliche. I mean, this is what they teach you in in school that that racism is born out of fear. But right. I I honestly and truly believe it is a hundred percent true. I think that we we uh, we fear what we don't understand and hate hate what we can't conquer. Right? Is that that hate me now? I got my yeah. rap lyrics right. So yeah, yeah. But the but the idea is that like you you can't hold two counter um, countercharge beliefs in your head simultaneously as a human, you should, you should not be able to, right? So people can, can twist things wherever they want to, but, but in your, in your heart, you, you cannot both love a person, but simultaneously hate all people of a group that that person is part of. Right. So, so I've always had this, this, this belief in this conversation with you is that it is truly a measure of exposure and experience that allows for lack thereof that allows for ideas like that to even bear the light of day. And that in my experience, even, even those who are coming from a racist place or a time that was more racist, you know, I think time is a huge factor in this, um, struggle, struggle when they meet someone who breaks their preconceived notions it forces them to go back and say, wait a second, how do I now adjust my, my racist, racist lens here to factor out that person? 
And when it's only right. one person, when it's, when, it's your, when it's your token black friend, right? And you've only got, you know, depending on where you are in America and, and how you were brought up, you may not know that many people that don't look like you. And this goes mm-hmm. both ways. So I'm, I'm only mm-hmm. giving it from one perspective. But then you meet, you meet and experience two people, three people, five people, 50 people. You, you grow, you get older, you realize some things about, about your, the world around you. And this is, this is a global thing too. And you can no longer honestly hold those beliefs. And in, in, my, in my vision of, of this, the, the, you know, this is the, the arc of justice bends you know, continuously towards the good, is that time is what heals these things. And no, it doesn't move as fast as, as we want it to. And it doesn't move in a continuous arc. It moves in jagged sparks driven by events like those that have, that have been happening where large segments of people stand up and say no fucking way like not anymore right. and then it ebbs back the other way and you go back you know one generation and, and you've got jim crow and you've got you know Al- at selma like it, that wasn't that long ago and and right. you know when when you get to you know our ages now which you know we're still young men but we're not you know we're not kids anymore you run right. that calculation, you go, wait a second. Um, that happened less than one of my lifetimes ago. Oh my gosh. Like, look how far we have come. No, this right. by no means disqualifies where we are, but, but you have to look at history and, and track it and say, where, where has it from where it was to where it is? What it, this is like the stock market, right? So what is the trajectory? What is the trend? What is, mm-hmm. what is the index's moving average of racism in America? And I think you come to a, com, a, a, a logical conclusion that it is moving the right way, just not as fast as we want. 100%. I mean, and I think like, so let me just say, let me, let me ask and say at the same time, like, so I have the benefit of knowing your parents and great, your whole family, great, great people, like everybody in your family, that I that I've had the benefit of knowing just I love them I love them your dad in particular you know your dad is my guy and I know your dad grew up in an environment where racism flowed freely from everybody's lips from everybody he hung around maybe sometimes he said some things I don't know what he was like as a teenager but the reality is I know how you and Brie were raised was everybody is everybody is to be loved and respected. Like when I came to your house for the very first time, so I'm not just a black guy, I'm a huge black guy. Like, you know, I am the one that makes you clutch your purse. Like I'm that guy. Until you talk to me or see me smile, like you're freaked out. And when I tell you upon meeting your parents, like you become hypersensitive to energy that people let off. And I fully expected because I, you know, I knew you fucked with me and loved me. Excuse my mouth. I knew you loved me, but I was like, okay, so take me home. But if people are going to pull them to the side and say, Seth, what have you done here? And not a not a second of that. Like it was almost like twice the love when I walked in the house and everybody was just so cool. And so then you you know you you have to, and I hate that you're you're ingrained on feeling this way, but you have to kind of as a black person say, okay, well, was that the front? Was that temporary? Was that being mm-hmm. nice to Dev's friend? And then you, you keep going back. You know, you keep going back and you keep being invited back and you're getting the big piece of chicken and the burger and the beer and and like, oh no, they they really love me here. Like I, this is yeah. home. And yeah. 
you you say to yourself like wow how does that happen in one white household and then in and, and once again like i said you're talking about generations so i know your dad and your mom raised you to be loving but i know your dad grew up in in jersey city like up in north jersey yeah. i i know the racism that it's a racial it's like a philly you know it's the italians yeah. the polish the blacks the puerto rican everybody is at each other's throats so i know he had to navigate all of that but how i can, does that I can speak to it yeah, yeah, I can I can speak to, to it. In, who he is today. Yeah, and I think I think it informs my point too. So so the first thing that I that I want to put out there is that we're we're Irish three generations from Ireland. And okay. I'm not I'm not gonna play this, you know, um this exaggerated myth that exists online that there were uh, Irish slaves and all that. I'm not I'm not no not I'm not making that argument, but we were a minority. We as a as mm-hmm. a culture were a minority. Irish need not apply. It's not you know yep. it's not made yep. up. Um, we were we were you know pretty low on the totem pole mm-hmm. for a time, and um, and so were Italians. So were any immigrant class. But yep. but and I'll and I'll make the point before somebody else does. We all came here voluntarily, <laughs> right? We had yep. we had a choice in the matter. We brought this upon ourselves, and that mm-hmm. that is a significant distinction, right? But right. but there's some amount of that where where he he grew up in the the duncan projects in jersey city poor mm. poor 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 so he so he comes from the streets not a, he didn't grow up affluent um mm-hmm. my my grandmother was in politics she was you know um one of the first first female pilots she was you know an adventurer she wonder wonderful amazing person i unfortunately never had the chance to meet so mm. so she was his role model um but he grew up poor and when you grow up poor, your friends are, are who your friends are, you know, right. and, and you're all poor and it doesn't matter. Right. And, and what the era that he grew up in, he was born in 42. So he was, you know, he was growing up in Jersey city, you know, in the, in the height of it and through, through the height of, of racial tension yeah. uh, in America. But my dad was a singer, right? So my dad, mm. uh, along, along with many other things, my dad was, was into music. <laughs> and, and at that time it was street corner doo Right. So guys okay. would get together on, on the street corner and, and they would sing. And that, that was entertainment. That was a Friday night. Right. So you'd have your, your crew of guys and you'd sing, you know, you'd do some covers and you know, some standards and you do whatever. So, so he, he and his group of friends from Jersey city um, were, were involved with, you know, in, he was not part of the group, but these were this, his immediate friends formed a group called the Dupree's. I don't know if you mm. ever heard of heard of the Duprees, but uh, I have so, heard of the Duprees. Yeah, ha- have you heard? Um, you belong to me. Some very classic um, oldies music. So the the original lead singer for the group was one of my dad's dearest friends. His name was Michael Kelly. So mm-hmm. Michael Kelly was a very light skinned but but definitely black guy. Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't he didn't sound black. So so remember the time period we're talking about here. So. So they, they recorded their demo tapes, right? And, they, and this is what you did. You went to the Brill building, you, you put down your tracks. Um, and he, he I, I had the fortunate, fortune to spend a lot of time with him and, um, and hear him firsthand. One of the most amazing entertainers I've ever, I've ever come to know, stage presence, et cetera. But the, the, the vocal chops, out of this world. Mm. So, so they laid down these tracks and they're songs that you've heard. You have heard his voice. Um, they went, went to, you know, they laid down their demo. They, they got picked up. I, I don't remember if it was Columbia or Capitol, whatever the case was. Then they found out that Michael was black. As they go, mm. wait a second, this was a nice Italian group because he's very light skinned, right? So you, you look mm. at the pictures and you wouldn't know if you didn't know. 
Um, so he was wound up being replaced in the group. Then the group went mm. on to have, have their hits and, and Michael, you know, came and went from the group at various stages, but it was always part of it. And I, I think that that, um, seeing that firsthand, cause you hear about it, you hear about it in the South and you, you, you heard about it, you know, this back then, um, you heard about, you know, people couldn't perform. You had to use a different entrance, all those, all those stories right. that we've all heard about that era. This was the North and it wasn't quite like that. You know, there was a little bit more solidarity. And for him to see his, his dear friend be, have his career com- and his life completely sidelined just, just because he happened to be black, I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's to my point of like, if he didn't have black friends growing up, I don't know whether, whether he would be able, uh, you know, he's not such a, a high-browed, high-moraled you know, person where you, know, you, you would see him on a soapbox saying, you know, we should all be treated equal. He's, you know, he's a street kid. You know, he grew up that way, but, but his friends in the street, the people who have your back when shit goes wrong, black, white, purple, doesn't matter. That's your crew. And right. I think that, that that landed somewhere in his psyche and it was never, it was, it was almost invisible in ra- racism in general, it was invisible in my childhood, um, mostly because for me, my, my second father, you know, from, from the time I was seven years old, I've done Chinese martial arts. My second father, who, who you've met, yep. is, a, is a black man. Right. And the, close, the second closest relationship, you know, got guiding relationship in, in my life. So it, it was never even thought as, as a thought in my head. And it, it was always so foreign. But, but to my point from before, those are based on two real life experiences, not an high-minded, high-browed, you know, ethos it's it's reality that underpins what you decide racism is to you i i love that and 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 that 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 explanation once again i give more detail in this conversation about that but i knew a lot of what you were saying already just from my experience of being around you guys as a family but it it does come as no surprise to me that you are who you are because of being raised by someone who has that type of, you know, broad experience with race and, and friendship. And that's, that's another reason why I am such a proponent of sports. Mm-hmm. I'm a proponent of sports because that will, your, your team is your color first before anything else. I remember when I went to, before I went to Temple University, I went to a small school in Pennsylvania, Kutztown University. And Kutztown was an extremely predominantly white school. And it's funny, you said something earlier about people not needing a black person, you know, for their whole life or until very late in life. I had an experience at Kutztown where, and I'll get back to the story I was about to say, but I got to tell this one first. I had an experience in Kutztown where I was a math tutor. Um, I was a tutor for a lot of subjects, but this particular night I was tutoring math. And practice was over. And I was, I think practice ended maybe like six o'clock and I was supposed to tutor at six o'clock. So I had to run to the library and this was back when I was in shape good enough to run. So I run across the, the damn quad. I get to the library and there's this beautiful blue eyed, blonde haired girl, blonde haired down to her waist. Now, fortunately for me, I wasn't one of those black guys who went to a white school and just fell in love with white women because I had never seen a white woman before. I, I was blessed enough to have had mixed schooling 
coming up um, through through a few different schools that I went to. So I, you know, I pretty much I never dated. I think I had dated white girls when I was younger, but I had a lot of white male friends. And so I, you know, I was very much open-minded. So, but she was just drop dead gorgeous. It wasn't just because I was a black guy who'd never seen a white girl. Like she was just gorgeous. And I come in, I run into the library. Um, I'm in the foyer. I'm sweating. I got a half shirt on. That's a football jersey. I got shorts on. I, I look scary. I'm not going to lie. It was starting to get dark. And she kind of stepped back a little bit. And I, something just said, this might be who I'm here to see. And I was like, Rhonda? And she, you know, she was already white. <laughs> she turned whiter. Like, she, all color left her. All the pinkness in her skin left when I said her name. She was like, how do you know my name? And I said, oh, I'm Charles Harris. I'm, I'm, I'm the tutor. She's like, no, you're not. I was like, excuse me? Now, this is, this is funny to me when I tell this story. I've told it a hundred times in my life. I'm, the the whole racism aspect of what was going on here was lost on me until I realized that like it hit me smack like cold air, a ton of bricks as they say. I'm like, yeah, I am. I said, oh, wait, 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 wait. I see what you're saying here. I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, she doesn't believe it's me because I've got a football jersey on and I'm sweating. I just ran here. I'm clearly a football player. I'm getting the dumb jock thing from her mm-hmm. right now. Like that's mm-hmm. why she thinks I can't be her tutor. So I'm like, oh no, no. I said, don't let the jersey fool you. I said, I'm brilliant. I said, yeah, I am your tutor. She's like, you can't be, you can't be my tutor. You're black. And like said it so mm-hmm. matter of factly. I was like, I said, yeah. She says, you can't know math. And I, you know, I went to college young. <laughs> my first year of college, I was 17. So I'm 17 having this conversation with this woman. And I'm like, who says this stuff out their mouth? Like, what? Right. I can't be, I can't know math because I'm black. And it's lost on me because I had the experience of having, even though I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, every neighborhood I lived in, because I had went to school with white people and, and Indian people and Asian people, I, I never, it never dawned on me that you could miss a whole part of a population. So it never crossed my mind that I was the first real black person she had ever spoke to, which I would later find out is the case, was wow. the case. I'm sitting there like, what are you, I'm, I'm black, so I can't know math. And now I see like fear come over her because she feels like she's agitated, which she did. And she stepped back and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, yo, you know what? Don't worry about you, heart. We're good here. I said, I am black, but I'm also going to pass that one-on-one though. Because that's what we were, that's what she wanted to tutor in. And I said, but I'm going to pass that one-on-one. And I started to go in and this is where I say to this day, as a 17 year old, this is a lesson I've learned that has always served me well. I'm not going to say her prejudice went out the window because it did not. We would later have conversations that let me know she was still very much prejudiced and racist and all the other things. But her self-preservation rose above all of that. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I need your help. <laughs> like, it stopped everything right here on the, on, the, on the dime. I need your help. I'm sorry. That was rude of me. Can you tutor me? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, me being who I am, you know, I'm, I'm the same guy as a 17-year-old that you know me here and now. Yeah. I'm not going to condemn you to a life sentence for something you've done in, in, in a moment. So I got past her racist bad start and we 
I ended up not tutored her. We became friends, and I hit it. So you know, it all worked out. I restored justice for, for the <laughs> all, black for the always black right race. in the world. Always right in the world. So, uh, but no, like that. Very much that experience of going to an all-white school as a black person. I think there were six thousand students at Kutztown, and I want to say a hundred and eighty-two of us were black, and a hundred and twenty of the one eighty-two were men. So it was like a two to one woman ratio. It was, it was crazy being there. But going back to the story about race and, and sports, we're playing Cheney in a football game, Kutztown Cheney. Cheney is an all black, historically black college. And of course, a fight breaks out in the middle of the game. Um, the fight started actually between a black guy on our squad and another, and a black Cheney football player. But the first person to defend my teammate was a white guy. He like literally ran and left the seat, cleared, cleared the guy off of my boy and my other teammate. And then that started the brawl. So because it was now seen as this white guy hit this black guy, you know, and, and that was unacceptable for the Cheney players. So they start fighting and we're start fighting. We start fighting. So I'm fighting a Cheney player. And of course he's black. And we're fighting and he's saying to me, you're a sellout. You're going to take up for these white boys. And I'm like, you know, this is my teammate who took up for my other boy on the team. Like only four of us on the team that are black. Like, and he <laughs> took up for him. So yeah, this is my man. Like right now it's all about this gold and white that we have on. It's not about me being black or you being black. It's about this gold and white is fighting the blue and white. And that's what sports does for you. Like you become brothers when you play sports yeah despite your differences despite where you're from and it changes so much of how we see other cultures and other things because we love our teammates first and foremost and i know you had said something to me before when we had that zoom call when we brought all of our friends together about race where one of the reasons things are maybe a little different this time and are changing a little more obviously and a little with, with, with a little more fervor is because parents of white children who the white child has a black best friend or a black good friend, they love their child. You know, parents love their children. And when they see the hurt on their child's face because their friend is going through something or their friend can be harmed because they're watching the news. Like, wait, this can happen to my man? Like, yeah. the, the parent is like, I gotta do something about this. Like, this is affecting my child negatively now. And even if it wasn't in their heart to go hang a Black Lives banner, Black Lives Matter banner in their, in their window, they're gonna do it to support their child. And they're gonna, they're gonna start to come to that side. Like, they're not gonna do it out of just tokenism. They're gonna start to say like, wow, you know what, my child is right. They, the way they feel is right. And I got to go a little bit further to support that. I have to start to feel this way. And that's where I think that change that you're talking about will start to come because it's just crazy, man. I'm so fed up right now. Like, I'm so fed up that I'm not angry. Like, you know, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just tired of it. Like you, you said, we got on the call talking about the last incident, George Floyd. Oh, wait, that's not the last time now. It's Jacob now. Jacob yeah. Blake. Like, what the hell? And, dude, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm just done, yeah. and I don't understand what is going on and how we fix it. And 
It's just too much. All at the same time, it's too much. It's not enough. It's just crazy. This this country is crazy, and I don't know how we fix it. Yeah, I think that um that one of the you know one of the reasons why you're seeing I, I think um, such an outcry or such a outreach or such a participation this time from from you know Joe Average White guy is is this idea of a, a silent majority, right? The idea that the vast majority of us sit in that you know middle forty percent us us collective us regardless of race color creed sit in that middle 40%, kind of tune out politics to a certain extent, just want to go about our lives, you know, just want to have, have a job, have a family, put food on the table, you know, don't step on my shoes, I won't step on yours, and, and let's just keep our heads down and get stuff done. Um, but when that silent majority is shaken, and it is clear that you must move either left or right, and history will judge you, you know, Hamilton history has its eyes on you. Like you don't want to be on the wrong side of this one. You, we know, we know where this is morally. We know this is unjustifiable. So if I need to hang a black lives matter flag outside of my house so that it's apparent to everybody, which side I'm on, because you can't tell Mm -hmm. because I'm white. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not, you don't know, you don't know me. Right. So, so if I need to, to declare and flag is an interesting way to do it. If I need to declare my position uh, for the world to see just so that I'm not judged in and, or painted with the same broad brush as, as others, you know, that's, I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing people want to make it clear that they are at the very least, not part of that team. And at the very most supportive um, of, of a cause, but but I, th- I saw something interesting today, and I, I um, this harkens back to a conversation you have, I know I've had on on a different rate, uh, different topic on um, on sexual orientation, um, mm-hmm. and and um, and you know choice of partner. Black Lives Matter to me is is such such a low a low bar, and I think it was it was made to be cynical, even in, in and of itself, right? That you can say what seems to be such an obvious statement, and it's and the the, the meme online is like. You know, it's not that Black Lives Matter. It's that Black lives are important. It's that Black lives should be celebrated, right? And that's the mm-hmm. that's the cultural thing that that you and I get on all the time. Um, but but I want to bring it back to to um, to uh, homosexuality for a second. So that mm-hmm. there's that that same idea that you can be. That there's this word tolerant, and I think that Black Lives Matter and then being tolerant kind of for me hit the same way, which is that like. I'm so important that I can decide that I'm going to allow your life to life to matter, or I will tolerate the way that you decide to conduct your life. That's bullshit. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Mm -hmm. the, that is, that is such a condescending tone to even take that, that you even have, you're even important enough to have that opinion. Right. The, the alternative is, is to not only tolerate, not only to accept, but to celebrate, to move to that side where you say, no, it's, it's not only that I'm okay with that person, you know, loving whoever they love. I encourage them and, and celebrate and find it incredibly interesting and enriching to my life that that person's choices and experiences are different than mine and, mm-hmm. and seek that out. And that's, you know, that's where, that's where you and I are. I mean, it's like, 
that my life is better for having you in it. It's not, it's not that I allow you to be my friend, you know, <laughs> that, right, right. that perspective is so flawed. I think that comes from, so once again, we go back to how you were raised, which, which allowed for us to build this friendship. But then because we have this friendship, like it's easier, not easier. It's, it's almost mandatory for you to have this belief. Like, but yeah, you know, Tank's not doing me a favor being my friend, like we're friends. Like, you know, it's just, this is what it is. And, and as you were saying about people who don't have the benefit of a relationship like ours, but people who see a relationship like ours, who may just say to you, like, why are you so cool with that black guy, dad? And, you know, <laughs> you can tell him like, well, that's my man. And he does this and this and this and that. And, and I'm amazed at the things he does that I love and the things that I do that he loves. And, and then they can walk away saying, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Like, you know, I, I fuck with Devlin. Like, Devlin's a great guy. And if he thinks that it's okay to have that type of relationship with a black guy, then I'll have that type of relationship with a black guy. And for me, you know, and, and you, you, when, you're, when you're part of the black community, like, you know, and I say it just like that. Like, as a black man, you say, well, of course you're part of the black community. You're a black man. Not every black man is a part of the black community. Like, so, you know, you know, we have some guys that just were always outsiders and always will remain outsiders. But when you're a part of the black community, you got to be careful because black Twitter gets you. You know, black, black, the black community yeah. is very much a strong voice with strong beliefs um, that if they don't necessarily agree with what you're saying, you can be ostracized very, very yeah. quickly. Now, me, I don't give a damn about black Twitter. I don't give a damn about black people telling me that they don't agree with my thoughts because I love my people regardless of what they do or don't do or do or don't say about me. I know who I am and I'm comfortable in it. The reality is though, I am not the same black kid who grew up poor on food stamps in West and Southwest Philly. I have seen the world. I have made millions of dollars. I have been in you know, many, many offices and courtrooms and boardrooms and just different universities and places where I have gotten such an education, not just from the book education, but social observance and interaction with people who aren't like me. So I know that there are so many areas that we even, we, we can improve upon. Like we can, we can become better at. And the anger can't jump off when you say somebody was racist and they're considering not being racist. Your answer can't be F them, write them off. We don't want them to right. change. Let them stay who they are. No, nah. you know, the reality right. is, is come be, be off of the problem team and come be on the right way to do it team. And we become part of the problem goes back to that statement I made earlier, telling the story about the, uh, the radio show I do with the political uh, position. What makes us any better than the side that is being racist if we're so stuck in our ways and our beliefs and we believe we're right to the point where we can't be open-minded to any other view that's not ours? Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, do I believe being loving and kind to every person you encounter, regardless of their sexual orientation? regardless of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their social system caste, regardless of their skin color. Yeah, I believe that. 
Do I think that's the right way to be? 100%. But I can respect someone who doesn't feel that way. Yeah. We, we will not hang out. <laughs> we will not go have a drink together. But hey, you know what? I respect your reason for feeling this way. Because if nothing else, going back to that argument we were making about the, or the, the point we were making about the country and our rights, I want you to respect my stance. And I think where the arguments start amongst my people is when I make a statement like, oh, no, Tank, they're so wrong. You got to know they're wrong. F that. Don't give them no yeah. forum. How can, nah, mm -mm, we can't. Because everything that you believe so passionately, my bro, they believe it passionately as well. Right. They're, they're wrong, but they believe it passionately as well. So let's, let's help. And if we can't help, then let's at least not harm. Let's just go over here where somebody might want some help. Causing a fight doesn't win. I mean, I, I said this on my, my, my Facebook page earlier about Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I've seen this play out in many a barbershop. I know this to be yeah. true. Politics, so it's politics, and then it's the who's better, LeBron or Michael Jordan <laughs> argument. <laughs> These are arguments where you are not changing the other person's mind. Yeah. And it, it amazes me how, you know, they say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It amazes me how people are insane because they just know they're going to tell you so make such a good argument why LeBron is better than Jordan that you, while you're wearing your Michael Jordan t-shirt and your Air Jordan and carrying a, a North Carolina uh, hanky in your back pocket, you're going to take all of that off and tell them you're right. I now believe that LeBron is better. There's no way that argument is ever going to dis persuade anybody to come to your camp. Yeah. When two, when two different people walk into a barbershop, one believing Michael Jordan is the best player ever, and the other believing LeBron James is the best player ever, they're both walking out that barbershop with the same belief. It's the same belief they walked in with, yeah. no matter how good an argument you make. So if that's the case, and people are that dug in, which they are, why would you even try to convert them? Why would you try to out-talk them, out-argue them? Because as it pointed out in that book, what you do, even if you win the room, so it's you, you and me are having a debate mm -hmm. about Jordan and LeBron at a dinner where there's eight other people, and you're not going to change your mind, but I make such a good argument as to why LeBron is better that the other eight people all start saying, yeah, Devlin, LeBron is better. How could you ever think Michael Jordan was better? Now, I know you, you're not going back down. You can kick somebody's ass. You're entrenched, room, but, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at that point, you're like, you know what? I'm going to stop talking about this. I'm going to let this go. Yeah. We got nine against one. I'm going to let this live. But all I've done is piss you off. All I've done is make you further believe that Michael Jordan is better. You're going to go get some more facts to be able to tell right. me next time we talk. And I didn't win anything. I won the moment, maybe. But I didn't win anything. I didn't change your mind or heart. And I've made you an adversary now. Like you are mad with me and you're going to try that much harder to unearth my position the next time we talk. So why would I even try that? Why? That's not a good course of action to take. 
Yeah, the um, I I heard the uh, the tank talk this morning, and and how to influence friends and influence people. I think should be like mandatory reading for for everyone in their life. Um, mm-hmm. It it is just one of those books that exposes the um, what what it really takes to succeed. In 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 it's so true in so many ways. But it there's a there's an interesting aspect, and um, I think you kind of touched on it, and I I have a differing opinion on it. So it's it's an interesting one to talk about. Exactly what we're ta- we're talking about here. And it's this, the idea of the, the um, law of attraction and mm-hmm. whether or not you should give on your points to move towards the center in order to bond, magnetic being the, the key word here, and mm-hmm. pull, right? So this, I, I use this all the time. This is, you know, this is one of my, my go-to techniques. Uh, I'm, I'm naturally a, a diplomatic person. It's just my, mm-hmm. my, my, it was the way I'm, I'm built. So I can enter a room, you know, going back to your, your Jordan LeBron conversation, which, which is not even a question. It's Jordan, just, just to be on the record. But, but, <laughs> <I think so. laughs> but instead of you and I entering the room with diametrically opposed opinions and leaving the same way we entered, you start the conversation giving. You start the conversation from, you know, you're probably right, this, that, and the other. You, you bond, you come towards the middle, and then you use your upper hand, your persuasion, your facts, your figures to move towards your side. And where, where that ties back to racism is there, it's very easy, and, and I, you know, I've had these exact conversations, it's very easy for me to say, I will no longer tolerate one ounce of racism from any of my friends. And if you make an off color joke, you will be ostracized. You will be ridiculed. You will be, you know, forever banished. Didn't accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. The better, the better strategy tends to be not to, not to pile on, obviously don't, you know, cross those lines, but instead to, acquiesce the point to lose the battle to win the war to say hey what about this blah 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 you know and move try to move the behavior try and change the mind rather than just casting a broad a, a, you know a black marker and saying nope you've exhibited behavior x therefore you are uncurable un, unworthy of society and you shall be banished to hell forever you're no longer my friend problem solved right right that doesn't get us anywhere I, I think that, um, I, I don't know if you had any experience with this. I, I know you and I, you know, have a very, very similar salesmanship debate, you know, background, but I, I grew up, you know, in school, uh, in what's called debate club. Right. So shout out to Mr. Mm-hmm. Coleman. Should, should he ever hear this? But, um, <laughs> in, in school you, you, you do debate, right? So, um, did all through high school and, and, the premise is that you prepare a negative and a positive argument, affirmative and, and the negative for whatever the topic is, pick, pick anything, right? And you have to prepare both sides of that argument. And you don't know before you go into your debate competition, which side of that argument you're about to argue. You can't, you can't be slanted one way or the other. You need to be fully prepared to defend yourself, whether you're arguing the pro or the con, and you don't find that out until the timer starts and the, the arbiter says go. And right. you learn to say, what are the points? What are the counterpoints? What, what, what leg stands? What leg doesn't stand? 
and try to see things from both sides. It doesn't mean that you agree with the other side. It just means that you can, you can follow the logic. And if you can do that, and if you can at least see what, how someone has gotten to a conclusion, you're, mm-hmm. you have some way to walk them back to a better answer. Agreed. Agreed. Now, so in the history of oratory pieces, to, to, to delve deeper into this topic of trying to convince not one person, but many people's position to change on something and to do it eloquently goes right to the heart of what you said about giving a little bit before you turn back. I think to um, Antony's speech to the Romans about mm-hmm. Brutus at Caesar's funeral. So you think back where Brutus, you know, who we all know Brutus in history, you know, the ultimate mm-hmm. betrayer and things of that nature, but he had the crowd and Anthony had to come and he wanted to expose Brutus for who he was. But in order to do so, when you got a crowd, you know, frothing at the mouth in support of Brutus, you can't just come in there from the door and start saying, hey, I saw him stab Caesar. Like, you know, you can't, you can't do that. It's not yeah. going to work. So you have to say, hey, Brutus is an, is an honorable man. Is he not? Like, you know, you start these things with praise and, and, and going. Like my coach used to tell me in football, and I won't go into this lengthy example, but he used to say, take them where they want to go. You're trying mm-hmm. to block somebody and, and they're giving you resistance a certain way. It's easier to block them the way they were already trying to go anyway. So if this crowd is sitting there yelling, Jordan, 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 and you want to say LeBron is better, you better start off praising Jordan. Yeah. Then you can, you can start to segue into how Jordan influenced LeBron. Now you're bringing some favor upon LeBron. Then you can start saying how he emulated Jordan's game, more favor. And then you take it to the fact that how you praise Jordan's youth. Well, Jordan's not, not, not youthful anymore. LeBron is. And yep. you can start to shape the argument in such a way that's persuasive using the momentum that you're already facing from that particular audience. So right. that's your point. That's brilliant. Hey, ver- verbal judo. Yes. <laughs> and we all need to learn how to do more verbal judo, man. It's, it's, it's just we've reached a level in society where we have so much social media. We have so much online interaction that a lot of the oratory and just communicative skills that come along with just, you know, so being good oratory, a a good orator, telling a story, putting a story together, using proper vocabulary. And proper vocabulary isn't always, you know, the King's English, the proper diction. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, a level of language that most resonates with whom you're speaking. So you're talking to the level of your audience and in a way that endears yourself to them. But that body language and that cadence and that tone, knowing when to hush a little bit, knowing when to get their attention, like that ability is lost on so many people these days yeah. because it, we're, once again, we're a soundbite society. We could type something real quick, you know, I'd rather text and talk, you know, I'd rather, you know, watch this than engage. So I think that the, the skill, which is why I'm so, you know, not just blessed and, and just favored that I have relationships like the one that you and I have, I get so much out of it. It rounds me in such a way that every time we talk, whether it's for a few minutes or whether it's lengthy like now, I learn something. I get something that improves me as a person 
my cup gets poured into more from these types of conversations. I love them. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, that's the, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, we, we only get, you know, to, 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 to my belief system, you go wherever you want to with it. I, I figure I got one trip around, you know, and, uh, and I yeah. got not a whole hell of a lot of time. So only you choose how, how, you, how you spend that time. Only cho- you choose how you perceive your situation. And I think right. that um, one, of the, one of the things that um, I, always, I always say you and I share in common, and a lot of other people um, who are successful, I, I think, share this trait, this, this ability to um, disregard all facts to the contrary and perceive something the way you choose to perceive it. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a gift, right? So, yeah. so there are so, so many people who spend their lives with a, a checklist of reasons why they failed reasons why the deck deck was stacked against them reasons why they never had a shot anyway. And, and they, they go to their grave blaming the world and how the world and the world was out to get them. And this person, you know, torpedoed them and whatever. And then there's people who, disregard all facts to the contrary, disregard where you were born, how you were, how you were raised, what opportunities were and weren't given to you, whether you were born with or without money, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and choose to not only excel in spite, but to excel because to say, well, yeah, that's exactly why I'm who I am. I Mm -hmm. got to experience, I had the pleasure of experiencing that. I've been through hardship. I've been broke before. I've had $5 in my pocket and I'm not afraid to have $5 in my pocket again because I got from I got here once before by my own you know blood sweat and tears and if I need to I'll do it again. And that right. that level of confidence in in yourself and ability to to shape your perspective perspective of your circumstances to fit your vision is what I see as a, a damn near identical trait in almost everybody who, who I encounter that I, you know, that I find to be successful or to, to find to have an enriched life. It, it, and to, to add to that point, it's one of those things where if you're going to be successful, there's a whole lot that goes into the pursuit of success. But if you're going to be successful, the first thing you have to believe is that you believe in yourself, that despite what feedback you may be getting, that this thing that was in you, that pushed you to go this direction was right. I had to do this because I felt as though this was what needed to be done. And to me, I'm such a contrarian the more people who tell me I'm crazy and that I'm wrong, the more on the right path I believe I am, you know, because I get that the masses, the average, the, the, the bulk of people are not, they're not on their way. Like, you know, they're not, they're not doing what should be done. And as a result of that, you got to realize that if you're not thinking like everybody else, you're doing the right, you're going the right path. Uh, I, I think back to the first time I ever read Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. And I'm gonna completely, so anybody listening who wants to say, thank got this wrong, I agree already. I'm gonna completely misquote my man Booker T. 
I'm just trying to get the, the gist of what he said. Uh, Booker T. Washington, if I remember correctly from the book, was born free by like three weeks or the opposite was true. He was born into slavery and was free three weeks later. Um, slavery was completely rescinded in the early stage of his life or right before his life began. And, you know, you go right out the, the, the frying pan into the fire. Slavery ended and it didn't make life much better for a lot of folks with, yeah. you know, sharecropping and, and all the stuff that came right after slavery and, and people continuing to treat you like you were a slave anyway. But he said that he would never change his lot in life for that of a white who didn't know his struggle. He said, because hmm. that person will never be able to persevere through what I'm persevering through because they didn't have to. And I know that I am better for the struggle that I'm going through. So I wouldn't change my life for the easier route. And I love that. And I feel that way all the time. So we went back to earlier in our conversation about what I wanted to play ball. Nah, you know, it would have been cool. I mean, you know, just to walk up to a girl, I'm number 82 and something happened, that would have been kind of cool. And you know, getting paid a bunch of money to play a game. I guess that's kind of cool. But my steps, every one of them, something had to go and I had to fight and climb up a ladder and get certain places. And I welcome that experience. Like that has made me who I am. I, I don't know, uh, you know, and, and I know that we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I'll say this. When I had dinner with a couple of clients the other night and one's a retired basketball player, played in the NBA. And we were talking about very similar, I didn't quote the Booker T. Washington book, but I, I, I basically said the same conversation. I said, one of the biggest challenges that my professional athlete clients had in rearing their children is they became who they were because of their humble and in most cases impoverished upbringings it made them fight to get out of it. And then they made a bunch of money and the first thing they tried to do was say, I don't want my kid to grow up the way I grew up. Yeah. And so you've raised these children and I have six of them. These children who, dare I say, they're spoiled, they're privileged, they're entitled, and they have none of the fight that I had. And I didn't want them to. Yeah. And now I have to look at them and say, did I cripple them? Did right. I steal from them the opportunity to know what it's like to not know when dinner's coming, to know, to, to watch your mom cry, ask her what's wrong, and she say, I don't have any idea how I'm paying rent this month. My kids, that, that's such a foreign concept to them. They're like, first of all, what is this rent thing? Like, we own everything. Like, what is this rent you speak of? And how, why, why is someone crying? They, just go to dad. He has all the money. Like, you know, just go talk to him. And it's just like they don't get it because I protected them from it. But did I protect them or did I harm them? Because yeah. it's the struggle. It's that what Booker T talked about that really makes us our best version of ourselves. We're going to have to face this, this trajectory that the whole way up the hill is winter coming into our face. Like just the coldest hails and rocks mm -hmm. and the sidewalk is icy. And yet we still have to get to the top of the sidewalk. We can't be stopped. We can't be deterred. And, yeah. and that's what you wonder. Yeah, I, I think, um, the, the, I use this phrase all the time, but the idea of on the shoulders of giants, right? So, so you, you, are, you are that giant in, in, 
in your in your family you know i i to a certain extent that in in my family this bridge between poverty and wealth right um and and maybe and maybe you know i'll, I'll couch that for a second and say poverty to affluence because because i think right. wealth is still uh, something you and i are, are both aspiring to attain right so so the idea is that that yes that that is a hundred percent correct you you cannot i cannot be be my father because i did not have his experiences but but my you know nothing wrong with your your aim's got to change your target right so to now take all that and say what what can i do now that i can see a little bit further than he could you know he right. he certainly you know blew out his his expectations right from from a poor kid from jersey city you certainly blew out your expectations you know you're you're far more than anybody would have given you credit for but right. now as a as a child of someone who who broke those boundaries you find a uh, a responsibility to say what can i now aspire to that was never conceivable one generation before and you know now with kids taking it forward for my daughters it's it's a question of what can't they do right so right. I, I look at my daughters and i say there's nothing that's keeping you from being president um, an astronaut, like, not, and I'm not just being, you know, funny in in like nah, no that shit about their kids. Like, but that's that's the time that we live in, being being that they're females, and that's the opportunity that I aspire to afford them. Is that like literally sitting here? There is there is you have no impediments. You can go to any school you want to. I got it. You can you can if you want to do, you want to be an actress. You want to be on Broadway. You want to you want to be in politics. You pick it, kid. Like there is, you have no, nothing is tying you down. Um, right. And whether, whether they can, whether they do that or not, whether, whatever path they choose is not your responsibility. But I think that what we, what we aspire to, what we work every, every day is to put that new floor under the family name and say, no, and this is, this is where we are now. Fuck that other right. stuff. This is where we are now. And where we go from is a launch from here. And, that's a great uh, point. I love it. That I love thinking like that. That that's a great point. And I think uh, you know. I know we we've, we've been uh, we've been going long, but that's the you know that's what I think we both uh, set out to do. It's what we do in our in our businesses. What we do with this platform. It's what what you do with Wealth Our Way. It's it's a question of you know we've been blessed, entitled, lucky to to bring it all back around to to be where we are. Question is what's next, right? What you, you you die with an expensive coffin, or uh, or you leave a legacy. Yeah, I, I think that when, when you're looking at, you know, so we talked about this the other day with, with our ages now, you know, me being 50, halfway through life prayerfully, you know, say I get another 50 years out the deal. The the reality is, is that I've done so many of the enjoyable things and I've achieved so many of the things that I never thought that I would achieve. So now it definitely becomes about the legacy. It definitely becomes about the what's bigger than me part of this, because I've, you know, been fortunate this to be for our next conversation. I've, I've been fortunate to start at nothing, make a bunch, go back to nothing and then start making it all back again. And that in of itself has been, you know, amazing, amazing roller coaster and, and enjoyable, but it's been such a eye opening experience to realize that when I was poor the first time, the having stuff was an unknown. So I, I had to do it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to experience this. 
Then when you had it, so now you've had both experiences. Having is much better. I will go on record as saying that. <laughs> but <laughs> when I lost it, you know, divorce and, and just the perfect storm of drama all happened to me at the same time. When I lost it, I was so much more secure in my poverty than, than I was the first time I was poor. Like, and I was an adult. Like, the first time I was poor, I, I couldn't even blame. See, like, my mom was yeah. poor and she brought me along with her. So <clears throat> I couldn't take the rap for this. This time it was my fault or my doing that I had gotten here. And I was so much more comfortable in it. I didn't care anymore. Like, I've made so much money back. But, you know, back when I had money the first time, I had Rolexes, Brightlings, Audemars Piguet watches. I don't own a watch now. I won't even buy an Apple watch. Like, <laughs> I, I can tell time on my phone. And it's, it's a different mindset now as I have the money this time. It's more about the, the change that I can bring about from having some level of influence and affluence than it is about what I can accumulate and acquire. And I had to go full circle through the, the different levels of the spectrum that I went through to get to right where I am right now. So it goes back to the, this is the experience for me that I needed to be on. Well, cheer, cheers to that, my friend. Successful yes. uh, success and, uh, and prosperity. And uh, as, as Jay says, may the best of your todays be the worst of your tomorrows. My man. Yo, love the time, <laughs> brother. Yo, can't wait to the next one. You, you too, my friend. Sleep well. Yes, sir. Peace.